This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. You can take your Bible and open to Matthew chapter 28 this evening. That's no surprise at a missions conference. We just sung, Lord, let me serve. Lord, let me follow. Give me a place and a purpose to fill. Teach me to serve. Teach me to follow. Use me to do your will. I hope that as we consider this passage together this evening, that the Lord will give an answer to that heart cry. If you are a Christian, your heart resonates with that. You long to serve the one who bought you with his blood. If your heart does not resonate with that, you are not under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And you need to bow in submission and repentance before Him. But if your heart does resonate with that, I hope that what we look at this evening will be a blessing to you and give some direction and answer to that. Let's pray together. Lord God, we, we look to you now. My words are feeble and frail, and these people have not come tonight to hear what I believe. They have come to hear from you. It is your words, Lord, that have brought this world into existence. They have created the very thing they called forth, and we look to you now, that the words of your Son in this passage might create that which he requires within us. So we ask for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. He would take these things and cause us to grasp the significance and weight of them. And we ask this for the glory of your Son, that his mission and his heartbeat may become our own. Amen. I want us to look at the Great Commission this evening from, I think, maybe a different vantage point than we typically do from a different lens, through a different lens than we usually do. In other words, this isn't going to be your typical missions conference sermon on the Great Commission. We want to address the question from this standpoint this evening, what picture did Christ have in his mind when he gave the Great Commission? What did he see down the road? What was his vision? What shape did he envision the work his followers would undertake in response to this commission? What shape did he anticipate it would take? And there's a more specific question that I hope we can get at this evening. Very specific question. Is God calling me into missions? How would you know? But that question will be answered I think directly by what we look at this evening, but there are a host of other questions that the analysis of the Great Commission this evening will answer for, such as this. What, what is a missionary? 
what counts as Great Commission work? What is the irreducible minimum of the Great Commission? You could strip everything else away, and this is the center of it. Who decides what role I play in the Great Commission? Missions? What country? What is my part in the Great Commission as a local church member? That's what the majority of you are. How can I prepare to be a missionary? How can I better pray for missions? Who should we send to the mission field? What kind of person makes the best missionary? What is the product of Great Commission work? What shape did Christ envision it would take? And what is the goal of the Great Commission? When is it done? Perhaps that focus doesn't immediately arrest you. I'm assured by your pastors that this church loves missions. But perhaps you aren't completely on board this evening. At any rate, you're not a missionary, right? And this is the Great Commission. So does that mean you're only here as a spectator this evening? The answer to that question is no. These questions affect every one of you because Christ gave the Great Commission to the church, not the missionaries, as we'll see tonight. So let's look at this passage this evening with that overarching question in view. What picture did Christ have in his mind when he gave the Great Commission? Or what shape did he anticipate the work the apostles would do in response to the Great Commission? What shape did he anticipate it would take? Would it look, did it look in his mind, like Christians with plane tickets and gospel tracts in their hands? Is that the sum total of the Great Commission? Let's read the passage together this evening, Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power, that's the word for authority. It doesn't mean ability, it means authority. All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. That word teach means to make disciples. Make disciples of all the nations, Christ says. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Amen. I want to observe at the outset that this passage, the Great Commission, bristles with authority. Jesus opens with it in verse 18, all authority, all power is given unto me. And notice the scope in heaven and on earth. That much is clear to us. But there's not a single phrase in the Great Commission that does not draw deeply upon the concept of authority. This passage bristles with it. Let me show you. There's not a single line that does not draw upon this concept of authority. Look with me at verse 19. You do have a copy of the scripture right. You can make sure that I'm speaking the truth of God's word. Okay. So look at your Bible. So look at your Bible. Go ye, therefore, and make disciples teach all nations. The way the passage is constructed, that's the big idea. Go and make disciples. 
If I said to you, what's the primary command of the Great Commission? It is this, make disciples. There's no question about that when you look at that in the original language. What is a disciple? Disciple is a protege. He's a pupil who submits himself to the teaching and conduct that is modeled by another, the one who's discipling him. What does it mean then to make disciples of a king who has all authority? In fact, at first reading, those two things don't go together. A king with all authority doesn't have disciples. He's got subjects. What does it look like to make disciples of a king who has all authority? Well, the passage actually tells us. There's two components of what it means to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And here they come. It means to baptize them. And it means to teach them to observe not merely to teach them, to teach them to observe, to obey all the things that Christ has commanded. That's what discipleship is. That's what it means to make a disciple, to baptize an individual and to teach them everything Christ commanded. We could boil all of that down, and this is what I want to justify for you now. Making disciples, we could rephrase that as securing the obedience of the nation's to this king. That's what it means to make a disciple. Compelling them to submit to the one who has all authority. That's the tenor of the entire passage. And thus making disciples is all about authority. John Broadus wrote a very good commentary on the book of Matthew. says, to disciple a person to Christ, a king... To disciple a person to Christ is to bring him into relationship of pupil to teacher. Taking his yoke of authoritative instruction. Listen to this, this doesn't fly well today. Accepting what he says as true simply because he says it. And submitting to his requirements as right simply because he makes them. That's what it means to make a disciple of Jesus Christ. Making disciples then is all about authority. The next statement is baptism. Is baptism about authority? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. We understand what it looks like externally when someone baptizes, okay? You got a baptismal here, you've seen this happen before. But Christ, is he merely commanding an external act here? Is he merely commanding a ritual? Or is there more? Well, notice several things in the passage, what it says about baptism. Go ye therefore teach all nations, baptizing them. That would be the disciples. Baptizing those disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. See that word baptize? Look at it in your Bible. Okay, for you, those of you who like English, by the way, a good English course will help you understand your Bible so much better. Those of you who like English, that word baptize, not being technical here, but it's what we call a transitive verb, and that means that one person acts upon another. There's two individuals in the process of baptizing, right? And the Jewish rite of purification, their version of baptism, points out how significant it is that there are two individuals in baptism. Because Jews baptized themselves. 
There was only one individual when a Jew baptized himself. And we've uncovered this mikvah at the end of the Temple Mount where the Jews would go and self-baptize, dip themselves in the water there. But Christian baptism is different. Jesus doesn't say go and urge them to baptize themselves. He says, you go and baptize them. You act upon them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Why does there have to be two people for Christian baptism? Well, the one baptizing performs the act, the passage says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And that phrase means two things. The first thing it means is something in relationship to the one carrying out the act of baptism, the baptizer. For the baptizer to baptize someone in the name of the triune God means that he baptizes them with the authority of the triune God. Baptism is like the issuing of a passport to a citizen. The issuing agency, in my passport it happens to be Miami, the issuing agency under the authority of the state, the Department of State, grants the passport for what purpose? That passport serves as visible proof and evidence of citizenship. So that when I get on a plane from Sydney and fly to Los Angeles and I present the passport, they open the gates and they let me in. Because the passport proves I'm a citizen of this country. It's, the, it's simply the issuing of a document that certifies the bearer a citizen of that country. By this exercise of authority, the authority of the issuing agency, who acts under the authority of the state, by the exercise of this authority, the issuing of this passport, the citizen is publicly identified with the state and therefore admits him at its borders. If I post a picture of my American passport on Facebook, guess what that means? It tells the whole world I'm a citizen of this country. I can get in and I'll be welcomed. In fact, that's what it says on the first page of my passport. Please welcome this citizen and give him all aid that he needs. Amen. The baptizer then, this analogy, isn't making the one baptized a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. God does that. Instead, he's making public and visible the individual's heavenly citizenship. He's making visible upon earth heaven's own verdict regarding that person. You don't baptize unbelievers, right? You baptize unbelievers around here? If you find somebody who wants to be baptized and he's not a believer, do you baptize him? Baptism draws a line then between believers and unbelievers. It tells you who's in and who's not. Only people who are baptized are members of churches, right? That's why Pastor said this morning, when these people came down to be admitted into church membership, they have believed on the Lord Jesus and they have evidenced that by baptism. So for the one baptizing, what's he doing? He's extending to the one baptized a welcome, a reception. He's saying, I recognize this individual as a follower of Christ. He has put himself forward and I affirm it. I receive him into fellowship with me. For the baptized, this phrase... Go ye therefore teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost for the one being baptized. The flip side of that authority that the baptizer administers, the flip side is this. That phrase that says that for the baptized, 
The baptized then is identified with the triune God. When you baptize an individual in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you're saying this person's not a worldling anymore. When a person puts himself forward and says, I submit myself to the waters of baptism, that's a public declaration. I belong to God. Jesus Christ is my Lord. That's what we say when we're baptized. We're baptized into identification and association with. In other words, when I got my passport, it was my ticket in to the visible country of the United States. That was already on file, the State Department. They already knew I was a citizen. But here's my ticket in. This is the open door. This is exactly what 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says. By one spirit, you have all been baptized into one body. Now that's talking about an invisible act. The spirit, baptism, does what? By one spirit or in one spirit, we have all been baptized into one body. Baptism adds you to the body. Invisibly. And the visible act of water baptism adds you to the visible body of Christ, the church. It is the front door. And that's why, again, as Pastor said this morning, you've got to be baptized to get in here. We don't let unbaptized people into Baptist churches because they're not flying the flat. They don't have the passport yet. Why would you let them in the gate? So for the one baptizing, he operates under the authority of heaven to say, we receive you into this closed community of believers we recognize you and admit you. Here's your passport. For the one baptized, it is an association with, an identification with that community then. So think of what happened on the day of Pentecost. Here's Peter. He stands up, preaches to the same crowd that crucified Jesus Christ. So what's Peter expecting is going to happen to him at the end of the sermon? He brings that sermon down to its conclusion and he says, therefore, in light of all these Old Testament scriptures, know this. The one you crucified was the Lord. It was the Messiah. And that hits 3,000 people in that crowd like a ton of bricks. We called for the execution of the Lord of glory. And they cry out to Peter, what shall we do then? Peter's response is this, repent. Repent. Turn away from the opinion of the crowd. Turn away from their rejection of Jesus Christ. Embrace Him as your Lord, as the Messiah. You know what happened in that instant? If you were a news photographer scanning that crowd, you know what happened? In, you, you know what you would write about in your newspaper article at that moment? Nothing. There was nothing to see. Did anybody see them repent? That happens in here. And by that repentance, they're in. They become a member of the body of Christ. And Peter says then, okay, if you repented, step forward. Step forward and be baptized. We will receive you on the act of, by the act of baptism into the visible body of Christ. The, the, the act of baptism depicts, it makes public that repentance. And therefore, it admits them into the public body of Jesus Christ. And this is why Baptist churches historically have regarded baptism as the process of church membership for new converts. 
In other words, baptism draws a line. And by being baptized, you are publicly stepping over that line, saying, I identify with Jesus Christ. And it is a reception into the body, the visible body then of Christ. It doesn't save. It just makes public what's happened in the invisible realm. It makes visible repentance and faith. But here's the thing. Christ's command here to baptize is a command to act with the authority of heaven in this regard. When you receive a person into your membership, you're making an estimation about them. You're saying, we believe, based upon everything we read in the Bible and see in this person, we believe this person is a member of the body of Christ, and so we say, come on in. That's a lot of authority. To publicly designate and identify people as members. You you ever rejected somebody from church membership? That's a lot of authority too. As we'll see in just a little bit. And thus baptism requires authority. And by the way, incidentally, this becomes significant in just a little bit. Baptism then is simply a command to plant churches. That's all that Christ is saying here. If baptism is the means of uniting believers together, then baptism is a command to plant churches. And that requires authority in the name of the triune God we act. It takes the authority of the triune God to baptize another or to plant a church. Who possesses such authority? The next phrase, teaching them to observe all the things whatsoever I have commanded you. What does that entail? Once again, the shape of that command bristles with authority. All things. Teach them to observe all things. In other words, there's an established body of teaching Christ gave. It's an all things You can get your arms around it. You can draw a line around it. You can say that's something he gave and that's not. You can draw a line again and say, Jesus Christ commanded this and he didn't command that. Who has the authority to draw that line? To say to new converts, this is what the king taught. And that's not. Teaching them to observe This isn't merely information download. The church is not merely a teaching station. It is a place where men and women come to obey Jesus Christ. Teaching them to observe. Christ isn't merely giving us suggestions. He's not commissioning us to plant churches that merely convey information. His commission involves teaching converts to obey all that he taught. That requires authority. To urge them to alter their conduct, to stand in Christ's stead and say, the king said you are wrong. You must get back in line. That requires authority to teach them to observe all the things he commanded And finally, teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. Who gives commands? 
kings. Once again, we see that the Great Commission deals heavily with authority. What Christ has taught to the apostles while upon earth, he now instructs them to pass along to new converts, now that he is departing from heaven. The one who came down, who taught in the streets of Jerusalem, with all the authority of heaven, he said, the kingdom of God has come down in your midst because I'm here. And as he taught, he did not teach like the scribes. He taught with authority. But now he's returning to heaven. Who possesses the authority to teach all the things he commanded? To teach them to observe all the things he commanded. Who has authority for these things? And finally, the last phrase of the verse, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. That's not a warm, fuzzy promise to cheer our hearts. As we will see in just a minute, what Christ means by that promise is this. He's saying nothing else than that as his followers go forth with his presence, those to whom he has given the great commission go forth bearing in themselves Christ's own authority. We'll substantiate that from Matthew 18 in just a little bit. So that means that the fulfillment of the Great Commission requires great authority. Who possesses such authority? Apparently, only those who possess it may engage in Great Commission work. Does any Christian get to baptize? Does any person who calls himself a Christian get to tell you what Christ said? You know, there's a lot of LGBTQAIM plus activists today who want to tell you they're a Christian. And they want to tell you what Jesus said about their lifestyle. And they even have some kind of pseudo-hermeneutics to back it up. Did they get to tell you what Christ said? Did they have authority to tell you what the king said? Do you have to submit and listen? Who has such authority? And in this passage, the extent of Christ's authority in heaven and on earth does not define the extent of our ministry. All authority is given to me in heaven and earth, therefore go. I think typically we think of that as Christ has all authority, so the governments may close the doors, but we got authority to go in from Christ. So as far as Christ's authority extends, that's the extent of our mission. But that's not what Christ is saying here. The reason why I say that is because he says, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And so far I haven't met any Christians, missionaries, who are headed to heaven to evangelize. If Christ's authority defines how far our mission must extend, then our mission must extend there as well. In other words, he's not saying that. What he's saying is this, I have all authority. And I place it upon you to carry out the Great Commission. To baptize in my name. To teach them what I commanded. Somebody's got authority here. And whoever it is has the authority to go forth in Jesus' name. To compel the nations to submit. So who has that authority? Well, the pronouns are all plural in Matthew 28. It's talking to a group of people. And that's no surprise because it says in verse 17 that he's, or verse 18, that he's speaking to his disciples. And there were more than one of them on that day. 
But the way Matthew's gospel was written, we have to understand what Christ is saying here in a different light, though. Because Christ has already told the apostles something in this gospel about who will possess the authority of heaven upon earth. Who has the authority to carry out the Great Commission? In heaven's name, Christ has already said who has that authority. There's three elements in this passage that I want you to note once again. All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Heaven and in earth. There's also, as we've seen, the idea of authority throughout the entire passage. And then it closes with this, that Christ is with us. Well, whoever it is that he gave the Great Commission to, he promises to be with them. So who has Christ's authority upon earth to carry out the Great Commission? And Christ has already told the apostles in Matthew 18. This is not up for debate. Matthew 18, if you would turn there with me in your Bibles. It looks like we're switching gears, but we're not. Okay, hang with me for just a second, and then we're going to look at what this means for you. Matthew, 17, Matthew 18, look with me at verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. What's going on there? Got a brother who sins? Somebody's a member of a church, he sins. What are you supposed to do? Go to him privately and say, hey, you're out of line, buddy. King didn't command that. King said that was wrong. You've got to change. You've got to repent. And there's a question about whether or not the brother will hear, respond. Now, in today's world, if you do that, you get labeled as arrogant, nosy, Right? Even in churches, you get labeled as nosy, and who are you to tell me? In other words, the person who's acting in verse 15 had better have some authority behind him if he's going to go to another brother. Otherwise, it's you said and I said, right? Who's right? Whoever has the authority. So if he doesn't hear you, take two or three. Why? Because in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. What happens if he refuses to listen to them? Verse 17, if he neglects to hear them, tell it unto the church end of the road. Why tell it unto the church? Because if he neglects to, neglects to hear the church, the church is going to put him out, excommunicate him. And once again, I want to observe, and this is particularly visible in our day, that that is extremely arrogant unless you have authority to do so by the one who rules over the church. And the road stops at the church because that is the court of highest appeals. In other words, who possesses the authority of Christ upon earth? Is it the brother in verse 15? Does he get to throw them out and say, I'm going to treat you now like an unbeliever? Does he get to do it? What about the two or three? 
Where does the authority reside? In the church. That is where Christ has placed his authority. And that's exactly what the next verse says. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth, earth shall have been bound in heaven. In other words, what's going on here is when the church acts to put that man out of membership, they're not acting alone. The action of Christ has preceded them. And that man is not Christ's. Not that he's lost his salvation or something like that, but he has come in and by his impenitence, he has shown himself to be a false believer. One who's not really, truly a believer. So the church puts him out and does what? Verse 17. Let's him be unto them as a heathen man and a publican. Once again, that's arrogant. There's no authority that one human has over another. This is what is guaranteed by our constitution. That we all have religious liberty and yet Christ says within the church... You may be expelled, and when you are expelled, what the church does upon earth reflects what is already true in heaven. That means that the church then possesses the authority of Christ. How so? Verse 20. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. How does the church get this authority? Because he's there. He is present. He has placed his Holy Spirit within the church. And where the Spirit leads those members through his word to agree together to exclude you, they act with heaven's own authority. And you, if you ever find yourself on that side of church discipline, you ought to pay attention. Because the church has the authority on earth to affirm visibly upon earth the verdicts and judgments of heaven. See, Christ means for his apostles to understand the Great Commission in terms of what he's already taught them in Matthew 18. That the church possesses Christ's own authority to visibly affirm heaven's verdicts and judgments upon earth. To do upon earth in the name of heaven what has already been done there. What is already true there. In other words, these two passages go together. They both speak of Christ's authority. They both speak of his placing authority somewhere upon earth. So that that entity, wherever he has placed it, acts in heaven's interests and with heaven's own authority. And so Christ says in Matthew 28, Go, baptize, teach with my authority. And he says in Matthew 18, Go, tell and excommunicate with my authority. He says in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered, I am in their midst. And what does that mean about Matthew 28, 20? Lo, I am with you always. It's not a warm, fuzzy promise that Jesus is going to go with us and calm all of our fears and keep us from being persecuted. It means he's going with you with his presence, his authoritative presence. He invests you with his presence by the Holy Spirit that you may go forth with his own authority to baptize, receive members into local churches, to plant them, to teach them authoritatively all that the king has commanded, to teach them to observe all the things that Christ has commanded. 
This is where the authority lies. And that means that churches, not Christians, are responsible for the going in Matthew 28. He says to churches, go. Christians go, yes, but under the authority of their church. Churches, not Christians, are responsible for making disciples. Christians make disciples, but only under the authority of the... You know, you ought to be really careful of people on the internet who want to make a disciple of you, and you're not a member of their church, and they're not a member of yours. They have no kingdom authority over you, but this congregation does. Churches, not Christians, are responsible for baptizing converts. And admitting them into fellowship with the church. That's what Pastor had you say amen this morning. He didn't sit in his office and make this decision by himself. He didn't have the authority to do that. The church has the ability to admit members into its membership. Admit individuals into its membership. Christians may do so. They may admit and raise hands, but only together as the church. Churches, not individual Christians, are responsible for the teaching of what Christ has taught. Not that LGBTQAIM plus activist who wants to tell you he's a Christian. He wants to tell you what Christ taught. And your first question to him ought to be, what church are you a member of? Do you realize that no Christian church in the history of this world has believed what you taught? Paul says this in Galatians 1-2. An apostle writes to the Galatians and he says, Galatians, I write to you. He doesn't say I write to you with my apostolic authority. He says, I write to you with all the brothers with me. Paul buttresses his case by saying, the church believes this. Not even by saying, I believe this as an apostle. There's a fascinating passage in Acts 13 that we won't turn to for time this evening. You got Paul and Barnabas serving at the church in Antioch. These two guys are prophets. How do you know if Christ is calling you into missions? These two guys are prophets. Which means that God speaks directly to them and they convey that to the church. So if God wants a Paul, Paul and, and Barnabas to go out on a missionary journey, who do you think he's going to tell? What's the order going to be? God tells Paul and Paul informs the church, hey, you guys support me, I'm going to the mission field. That's what we would have thought because he's a prophet. It's surprising what Acts 13 says. The Holy Spirit said to the church... And then the church knocked on Paul's door and said, hey, you got to go, buddy. The Holy Spirit told us. Paul's not looking for some burning in the bosom. Christ administers his authority to go in the Great Commission through local churches. So for the work of missions, that means this. We're sent by local churches, and we are under their authority. I fear to teach anything that my sending church and its board of elders and congregation would not approve. I don't have the authority to do it, to make up my own stuff, because Christ didn't give me authority to do that. He gave my church authority to teach, and so I go under their authority. We raise support from local churches and thereby represent them in the work of missions. We go to plant churches. The work of missions and the Great Commission is nothing more than a command to plant churches in foreign cultures. What else do you think an assembly of baptized disciples who are being taught all the things Christ commanded, what shape do you think that takes other than a local church? The Great Commission is a commission to plant churches. So who makes an ideal missionary? 
An ideal missionary, then, is someone who is a faithful, contributing, local church-oriented Christian who has modeled what it means to submit himself to the body of Christ and its leadership. What's the best missionary training you could get? Four years at Bob Jones, Pensacola? How about seven years of faithful, involved service in your sending church? Discipling others, evangelizing, attending members' meetings where church business is, cons- is, is, con- is con- uh, transacted, visiting the elderly, investing in the lives of others, taking meals to new mothers, reading Christian books together, getting down on your knees and praying beside other members of this body of Christ, submitting yourself to their ministry in your life. And this means two more things for you now, very practically, I hope. Lord, let me serve. Lord, let me follow. Give me a passion. Give me a purpose to fill. Most of you are not going to the mission field. But that does not exempt you from the Great Commission. And here's why. This means the Great Commission is actually being fulfilled any place there's a church that baptizes and teaches what Christ commands. You know how many churches like that? That's where Great Commission work is going on. Baptizing and teaching. Making disciples. That's Great Commission work. Any place there's a local church. So the Great Commission is going on here. And it's going to go on in Australia. And it will go on in Papua New Guinea and Washington State. Christ didn't give us his authority, give his authority to the church merely so that we would have his authority to vote on the color of the carpet for the church or whether to purchase a Chevrolet or a Volvo make of church van. He gave his authority to the church. We're congregationalists, right? He gave his authority to the church to exercise church discipline, to maintain the purity of the teaching to maintain the purity of the body of Christ upon earth, to keep sin out, to say to erring brothers, you're out of line with the king's own commands. You've got to get back and you've got to repent. That's the authority we possess, the authority to do great commission work. So use your authority, authority to minister to one another in the name of the king, authority to encourage, authority to correct, authority to teach, authority to rebuke. Use your authority as a member of this church to the spiritual advantage of your brothers and sisters in Christ here. What are you pouring into this church? Or are you merely coming to get your Sunday morning sermon and going home? The church is not a place for teaching all the things that Christ commanded. The church is a place for teaching them to observe all the things that Christ commanded. And that means we help one another do that. So how do you know if Jesus is calling you into missions? Get involved in your local church and you'll find out. Get plugged in. That is the best training you can ever receive to go overseas. And when you get plugged into a church, you are doing great commission work here. 20 more seconds. We're singing this song. The chorus struck me as exceedingly biblical. Like the words are right out of the Bible. Except for one phrase. Teach them my word. Make disciples. And plant churches. 
How'd that get in there? Is that biblical? That is the Great Commission. Lord God, we pray that you would enable these believers here to take part in the Great Commission, Lord, for the sake of your Son in Chesapeake, Virginia. He may be glorified by those who look just like him on that day. We pray, Lord, that the authority you have vested in us would not go to waste, that we might use it to help each other grow up into Christ and to send men and women who are equipped around the world to carry with them his authority to baptize and to teach and to make disciples, to plant churches. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.